Hello again, friends. It's been another rough fortnight here at Pop Culture Burner headquarters. I won't go into details. Don't worry. We are doing fine. It's just everything gets a bit hectic as you get to the end of the year, and we're really experiencing that right now. <laughs> Luckily for you, we've got an expansive archive. We're really enjoying dipping back into it. And because time is a flat circle, every now and then, our episodes become relevant again. Like, for example, recently, Netflix released a documentary, Best of Robbie Williams, to mixed but mostly positive reviews. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but my friend Jamie has, and he said it was fascinating. That's my friend Jamie, the drummer for my band Lava Fangs, not Alex's friend Jamie, the artist who has been a guest on this podcast. It's not confusing, I, I swear. Did I mention Lava Fangs have an EP coming out on Friday? Anyway, all the way back in 2020, on the third ever episode of Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, Alex explored how Robbie's career evolved from boy band member to stadium-sized solo artist, and how he paved the way for Harry Styles to do the same thing 20 years later. Three years since, after the phenomenal success of Harry's House and Love on tour, that episode is still definitely worth a listen. So, without further ado, here's Alex. The other day, I revisited a piece of pop music history, the Kylie Minogue-Robbie Williams collaboration Kids, which is like a nonsensical mash of lusty word association kind of disguised as a song. The thing that I'd completely forgotten about was the fact that Robbie Williams raps at the end of that song. I say forgotten, as soon as it started playing, I realized that I still actually knew every word to it. Uh, so forgotten might be a little bit of a lie. The lyric that really stood out for me, though, is possibly because I remember it being like so censored at the end of a So Fresh CD, was uh, press keep asking me, do I care for sodomy? I don't really know. Yeah, probably. And I sent that to a friend of mine who had also forgotten the line about sodomy, and she said, go Rob. To which I replied, Robbie Williams walked so Harry Styles could run. Which is a big call, and in an uncharacteristic move, I'm going to try and back it up. I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about boy band solo careers. Now, I know that everyone roughly my age thinks that they grew up in an era that essentially like invented boy bands. And to be fair, it was a pretty good era. We had NSYNC, we had the Backstreet Boys, we had Boys to Men. Uh, there were like matching outfits and really dramatic romantic ties to girl groups and super intense chart rivalry. While the 90s did really hone in on the concept of manufactured pop and solidify a lot of the stereotypes that we hold about boy bands now, Rest assured, there is absolutely nothing new under the sun. Uh, and for as long as there have been groups of boys singing together, there has been my favorite boy band feature, which is that one member gets stupid famous. Boy bands, in theory, are supposed to be kind of egalitarian. There's multiple members. They're all contributing to the overall sound. And as a fan, you're supposed to just kind of let it wash over you, safe in the knowledge that even if you pick a favorite, everyone's equally talented. And while your affections may have a single focal point, the fan base is divided evenly in their love. The reality is that lining up anywhere between three and seven guys in their 
early 20s to mid 30s and making them sing and dance is always going to give you varying degrees of musical ability, visual appeal and star power. And that last bit is kind of the hardest to nail down. If we make a call and say that Jackson 5 were an early boy band prototype, the obvious example is then Michael. He may have been on par with the rest of his family in terms of musical ability, but he also had that little something extra that propelled him into superstardom. You could argue that that little something extra was a combination of savvy management and opportunistic record labels, but credit where credit's due. There has to be something worth promoting to begin with. And sometimes that's an innate star power rather than actual musical talent. Which brings me to Take That. Now, Take That were formed in 1989, and Robbie Williams was just 16. He very obviously wasn't management's first choice for most popular. Gary Barlow was the band's frontman, and he wrote most of their songs, including their 1992 breakout single. And by 1993, they had multiple singles charting in the UK, and in 1995, they were about to head off on their first world tour. This may seem like a relatively short period of time, but it is exactly enough time for Robbie Williams to be a very naughty boy. I obviously wasn't old enough to be across everything said in the UK tabloids at the time, but when I was looking up the sodomy line in kids to try and work out what the fuck he was on about, I read a series of interviews that seemed to indicate that A, he'd taken a lot of drugs, and B, he'd taken some of those drugs in gay bars because he thought he might be gay, and then he decided he wasn't, and then Elton John checked him into rehab which is probably enough fodder for, to last the UK tabloids for the rest of their lives, honestly. But by mid-1995, just before their world tour, Robbie Williams announced that he was leaving Take That, ostensibly because his musical ideas weren't being taken seriously. Then, in a humiliating turn for his former bandmates, Rob suddenly became one of the biggest pop stars of the late 90s, early 2000s, outselling the four remaining members in, like, every aspect. <laughs> Much like Harry Styles. But Harry hasn't released a rap verse with a pop icon and he hasn't been in rehab. So when I say Robbie Williams is a blueprint for Harry Styles, what do I mean? I think that Robbie Williams' career trajectory provides a really nice roadmap for Harry Styles because there are a couple of things about their choices that I think really define them as like quintessentially English pop stars and really separate them from US boy band members who've launched similar solo efforts. The first is this like really steady build of external credibility. Being in a boy band is uncool. Like I'm sure a number one song and a bunch of cash is cool, but people aren't really leaning on you for artistic value. One Direction have just about the uncoolest start you could ever wish for. <laughs> they were a series of X-Factor rejects who were called back and put into a group because the judges didn't think they could hack it on their own. I don't think they even won X-Factor. I think they came like third or something. Take That was similarly kind of pulled together. They were a concept before they were a band. This manufactured element is often enough for people to dismiss members of the band outright. When boy band members strike out on their own, they can't always rely on existing audiences or previously lenient music critics to continue to support them, which is why you could almost divine an impending boy band breakup by how much time they spend in public with people who have significantly more cultural capital. 
In the lead up to his 1995 departure from Take That, Robbie Williams bleached his hair sunflower yellow, donned an Adidas track top, and spent a long weekend partying at Glastonbury Music Festival with Liam Gallagher. Liam Gallagher and Oasis had released Definitely Maybe the year before, which at the time was the fastest selling debut in UK history. They were like proper rock stars in the most classic sense of the word. They partied hard, they were awful in the press, and they were critically acclaimed. So Robbie Williams showing up at the coolest UK music festival and being photographed tenderly embracing a notoriously prickly Liam Gallagher gave him a boost in his own cultural capital. He was hanging out with a real musician, with the implication being that he was also a real musician. Now this brief love affair with Liam Gallagher was, well, like brief. (laughs) Gallagher isn't just a naughty boy, he's also kind of a dick. He he has an ongoing feud with Robbie Williams, which is probably like enough fodder for another podcast. But the cool factor was already embedded. If someone parties with a rock star for a weekend and then leaves their boy band, it almost makes you wonder what was said in that 48 hours to make them strike out on their own. And when said rock star picks a fight, he's picking it with them directly, not the three other dudes in the manufactured boy band. Hurt feelings aside, it really works as like a marketing ploy. Keeping in mind that this was 1995, the same tactic in 2015 feels a little bit different. Where Robbie Williams had bleached blonde spikes and a weekend at Glastonbury, Harry Styles started growing out his hair, racking up like a motley collection of black ink tattoos and wearing elegant floral suits. He also wasn't the first member to leave One Direction. That honour and its accompanying moody musings about anxiety and artistic acceptance goes to Zayn Malik. But as I mentioned, you can kind of divine the end of a boy band by their cooler friends, and we should have been able to read it all in Harry Styles' 21st birthday party. The guest list is like a who's who of English cool with some American heavyweight thrown in for good measure. I could rattle them all off and why I think they're worthwhile. Alexa Chung is a good weather vane for whether or not a party's worth attending, for example. And having a Kardashian-Jenner association never hurts when you're trying to crack the American market. But I think the musical guests are key. Tom Morello was there. That's Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine fame. Killing in the name of guy. He was there. I had to double check I wasn't hallucinating when I read this in a Daily Mirror article, but it was backed up by The Guardian who made a pithy, presumably raging from within the machine that night, remark on his presence, which usefully highlights what I mean anyway. As a boy band member, Styles is viewed as the machine. By starting to introduce rock stars or people deemed to be of artistic worthiness, you can start to introduce the concept of yourself as artistically worthy. In the lead up to his first album being released, Styles was also praised by Johnny McDade of Snow Patrol. Now, you may remember Snow Patrol from their enormous 2006-ish hit, Chasing Cars, which I think was probably on the OC soundtrack. I assume... Uh, like most cool indie songs from around that time on the OC soundtrack at some point or another. Uh, But McDade now spends a lot of his time writing for other people, including, incidentally, Robbie Williams, and he runs a record label. But he was also one of the first people to talk about Harry Styles releasing solo music and praise his songwriting ability. That's important because it not only creates hype for the album, but it really doubles down on the fact that he's a real musician, I'm doing air quotes again, a real musician who writes his own songs. 
It also usefully kind of separates him further from Zayn Malik's chosen solo path, which focused really heavily on working with hip-hop and R&B producers that are often associated with a particular type of boy band sound. It seats Styles firmly in the rock star category, which lends its own version of credibility. We are, of course, not delving into the racial politics that sort of define the cultural worthiness of one genre over another because we only have so much time, and that's probably like an hour and a half of me yelling about mysticism and the death of Elvis. But rest assured, this is not an opinion I hold, but rather a commentary on the establishment of an identity. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, as always, sex and sexuality. I think we're two for three on podcasts where I talk about how sex means something, but you'll live. I touched on it briefly uh, when I mentioned that Robbie Williams spent some time in gay bars taking pingers. The rumors are present enough throughout his whole career that there's like a lawsuit, interviews, and a section on his Wikipedia page dedicated to addressing them. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of exactly up to what point Rob thinks he's gay, But I do want to talk about this very present sexuality in his music videos that seem to bounce off the gay rumours to really amplify it. Williams' early solo successes were usually ballads kind of in the vein of Angels. That's the I'm loving Angels instead one. But something about the turn of the century like really flicked a switch and suddenly we end up with the kind of music video that like really burns itself into prepubescent brains. I'm talking about Rock DJ. And to give you some context on the strong impression that this video left on people my age, I will refer to the beating pulse of the internet, the YouTube comments section. The YouTube, the like top YouTube comment on the video is a lot of 2000s kids really confronting their childhood trauma right now. So if that's not enough to make you pause and go and look up this fucking video, I'll give you a brief rundown. Robbie Williams is raised up from the floor into a futuristic room of bored-looking women roller skating around in a circle, and there's like a female DJ who's playing from an elevated booth. Williams seems to know inherently that he's been brought here for entertainment, and so he starts to dance, trying to attract the attention of the women, and especially of the DJ. But that's not doing it for the ladies, and so he begins to strip. First the shirt, and then the pants, until he's only in his underwear. He does body rolls and he seems to be really feeling himself, but to no avail. And so he takes off the underwear. But this, alas, still isn't cutting it. But he makes eye contact with the DJ. He knows what he must do. He reaches into the skin of his stomach and begins to pull, yanking it over his head like a shirt to expose blood and bone. He continues dancing as he pulls pieces of bloodied flesh off his body and throws them to the women, who are now ravenously ecstatic, rubbing the dripping meat all over their faces and chests. And eventually, all that is left of Robbie Williams is a dancing skeleton. This unnecessarily horny video was perhaps unsurprisingly banned from a lot of channels, It's also the perfect example of something you couldn't do as a member of a boy band. By ramping up the camp and vaguely macabre sexuality of his music videos, he drew a really clear line in the sand between himself and Take That. He was an edgier, grown-up version of a pop idol. Rock DJ worked by taking cock rock aesthetics and flipping the power dynamic to have women behaving brashly. 
This couldn't and wouldn't work now, or for Harry Styles specifically. Instead, come Styles' second album, we have Lights Up. Now, rumours have been swirling around Styles' sexuality, and he's made many of the same vague comments that Robbie Williams did at the height of his fame. It's very, I'm not gay, but... Lights Up plays with this and interestingly also uses a group setting. Styles is shirtless and he leans heavily back into a group of similarly disrobed beautiful people of varying genders who push their bodies up against him, hands sliding suggestively. There's like a kind of looseness about it where he acknowledges the camera occasionally, but more often than not he seems to be looking past it, as though the whole thing is somehow kind of freeing. He also confronts his own image at various points in a way that we're used to seeing with like female pop stars in mirrors and in water. And it makes it oddly vulnerable. It doesn't necessarily have the shock value that something like Rock DJ has, but it's the perfect example of uh, sexuality for this particular pop moment. It's not aggressive, it's not jarring, but it's kind of sensual and really sensitive in a way that reflects our current desires. It's also definitely not the kind of shit that you could do if you were part of the biggest boy band in the world. (laughs) Now, I said at the beginning of this, I think there's something different about Robbie Williams and Harry Styles that really distinguishes them from other boy band members trying to make it big solo. They're both really willing to put themselves at the centre of their narrative as a solo artist. Their bodies and their relationships are really cheekily referenced and reflected in their work. You don't get that with other artists, particularly not the Americans. <laughs> now let's look at like Justin Timberlake as an example. When Timberlake broke with NSYNC, his second release was Future Sex Love Sounds, which features Sexy Back. And by all rights, it sounds like the accompanying music videos should be something aesthetically closer to Rock DJ. Instead, Sexyback has Timberlake on some ambiguous surveillance mission of girls in a lesbian bar, and one of them blows up his room at the end, uh, or something. Either way, the whole thing's kind of intercut with shots of flashing lights and choreographed dancing, because really, this isn't about selling Timberlake as a person. This is about insisting that you take him seriously as a musician. Timberland, not to be confused with Timberlake, Timberland the producer, uh, essentially really defined the sound of the early 2000s and he provided beats for the album. And they slap. It really works to kind of layer in Timberlake's voice as an instrument. Songs like My Love and Sexy Back are about musicianship, but the accompanying visuals sort of noticeably lack a personality. Where Robbie Williams and Harry Styles have both really willingly put their bodies at the forefront in some obviously vulnerable way, Timberlake seems happy to remain within the boy band bubble. He's unwilling to separate himself from his former polished image. I'm going to call this the irony barrier, and I think it's a specifically American characteristic. Robbie Williams never fully cracked the US market, and I think it probably has something to do with the irony barrier. Landing in the middle of Los Angeles half-naked with a cheeky wink and a history of partying with rock stars was too brash of a move for the early 2000s, particularly when you had something as clean as Justin Timberlake happening at around the same time. But I do think you can see echoes of his choices in Harry Styles' American Breakthrough. The rock stars and the nudity are still kind of there, but there's also this ability to self-reflect to kind of give that cheeky wink to the audience that feels simultaneously intimate and fun. And the world is more ready this time around. So, I'll say it again, 
Robbie Williams walked so that Harry Styles could run. All right, that's the end. I made my statement. I tried to back it up. This really only scratches the surface of my many complicated theories on boy band mathematics and the sexual deviance of pop music videos. So if you have an opinion on either of those things, hit me up next time you see me at the pub. Peace. This episode of Pop Culture Burner was written and recorded by Alex Johnson and produced and edited by Wesley Fay. The theme song is also by Wesley. Check out popcultureburner.com for full episode notes and sources. We'd really appreciate if you could subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts so more people can find us. Pop Culture Burner is produced on the stolen lands of the Wongal and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples and we honour and respect them and all First Peoples as the traditional custodians of the lands we live and work on.